Welcome to Under the Skin with me, oh, Mr. Mistletoe. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That's not my name, Jen. That was a test. I'm Russell Brand. And we've got John Higgs on the episode. Here we're going to be talking about William Blake. John Higgs is a great writer. He's written about some incredible subjects. The KLF, I'm learning more about them. Robert Anton Wilson, sort of cultish figure. I'm learning more about him. The Future Starts Here is one of his book, Adventures in the 21st Century. I really liked him. He writes about Alan Moore, the brilliant graphic artist, and uh, Timothy Leary, the acid pioneer. Tune in, drop out, all that stuff. Now, um... Jenny. You don't want to do any more banter. Huh? I'll do banter, Jen. Okay. Let me think what I'm going to banter you about now. Do you enjoy football is nice? Yeah. I listened... What do we... <laughs> I listened to it the long. other day. It was quite good. Well, it's long. <laughs> Football's long. Yeah, the latest one's an hour and 45. Is that football is a bit too long? <laughs> yeah, probably. Do you think? Maybe, Jen. You know, some of them are like one of those ones with Patreon accounts. You just get 20 minutes. I was listening to Bob Mortimer's brilliant podcast, Athletico Mint. It's so, only 20 minutes long. Yeah, but you have to go behind the paywall to get the rest of it. But we oh, do, this This is behind the paywall. Yeah. And Above the Noise, brilliant, behind the paywall. Yeah. The YouTube content, fantastic, free. The meditation's on there. The brilliant videos on news analysis. The team's doing great work. Yeah, it's just the banter. Or um, a team meeting. Hold on, no, I'll banter you. <laughs> I'll banter you, good. <laughs> No, I've got something right now. What are you going to Switzerland for? To have a holiday. It's no place for a holiday, isn't it? Cold. No, it's warmer than here. Don't you dare say that about this country. And more beautiful and cleaner. Listen, you best stop criticising Britain. You've come here from Ireland, a country that Britain's done nothing but help. I'm going to Ireland as well. Two places? Yeah. Two holidays? And one holiday, two places. Ugh, you, that's, that's greedy. No, the second one's family, though, so what? it's yeah, a, that's holiday. a holiday. That's a mental it's breakdown. It's a reuniting of the parents. Why are you do, your parents reuniting? And not to get back together, but they're going to be, they're gonna in, be the in the same room. Yeah. When you did that, you mimed two geese <laughs> touching beaks. Or with it your could hands. have been the infinity sign. Only if you looked at the negative space <laughs> as the as the main symbol, Jen. <laughs> Two geese. Two geese pecking, or is it the infinity sign? What are your parents most like? Infinity or two geese pecking? But answer honestly, Jen. Two well, pecky not, geese. They're hardly infinity, are they? That's right. So that leaves geese. <laughs> A couple of pecky geese parents. Yeah. Your dad won't even encourage you to do the most basic river dances for your friends over in Britain, will he? No. He's got long hair now, though. Why is that? Lockdown long? No, once he became not a married man, he grows hair. Has he got a new consort? Yeah. Do you like the consort? Don't really know. I can't imagine you would be very good at creating a rapport with her. Is it? No, it wasn't. She mentioned something about tomatoes once or steak. I can't really. She's talked about tomatoes. Is she Irish? Yes. What'd she say about tomatoes? Something about cutting them. <laughs> I think you said cutting them because you're planning to cut that bit. Yeah? Cutting on oh, my family, but they don't listen to this. So All right, good. Right, let's express ourselves then. And he definitely doesn't listen to it. Let's express ourselves freely then. <laughs> yeah. Express ourselves, Jen. I am an expression of that, aren't I? Of what? Them. Oh, well. Let's think about this. Because the infinite runs through all of us. So, so they are a, infinite. There's a component of infinity, Jen. <laughs> but there's also a lot more pecky goose. <laughs> Look, let's just do John Higgs. In case he's listening, imagine how he's going to feel. 
all this crap. He loves this. He, he, this conversation he like is kind of like he? this, wasn't yeah, it? No, he is like this. Listen to shout outs. Look, this is a listener shout out. This is from AFK73. Just to say, Russell, love these podcasts. Full stop. Wim Hof, what a legend. Jack Cookson says, I'm a big fan of Under the Skin, except for that bloody woman, Jenny Mae Finn. Now, I'm devastated and traumatised by the recent news of a shooting in my hometown. Are there any people on Russell's radar involved in preventing the radicalisation of young men into these ways of thinking and acting? I love the episode with Dear Khan. It completely changed my attitude toward terrorism. I think to talk with somebody like her may be very effective. I fear that this is an under-addressed issue in our society, and I think Russell could be a brilliant facilitator of truth on this topic. I've learned so much from the podcast, and it's helping me and many others on a spiritual and intellectual journey, and listening to it makes working on miserable construction sites far more bearable. Jack, thank you, mate. Now, listen... Acts of radicalism and all acts of violence. You know, if you think about it, we're looking for answers, aren't we? We're looking for something deeper. People that feel disenfranchised and dislocated and they're acting this way, you're right to say they're looking for something. No one's making any excuses for violence, violence conducted by individuals, violence conducted by a state, violence conducted by a collective. Removing violence from our public discourse, removing discourse, uh, violence as a means, in, uh, as a method in our culture, it's got to be a priority for all of us. I reckon Dear Khan will be well useful. She's brilliant at this stuff. She understands it deeply. And I think that the, the where, where I think I can be useful is helping people to find their way to what it is they're really looking for and recognising that that will never be found in conflict with other people. It will be found through discipline and personal awakening. Jack, you're doing well. I'm glad I'm with you there on the site. And I'm sorry that Jenny May Finn is with you on the site. Because that can't be easy for anyone who's trying to do a good day's graft to know that Jenny's there. I don't know, Jenny, you, uh, have you ever dated a person in the world of construction? No, I think I'd be good going out with someone like that. Yeah, I do think so. Do you think so? Well, they're a scaffolder, they're a they hot can carrier. Do they're a bricklayer. Yeah. All right, so go on. What are you offering to this person? And before we start, their jaw... Is, is is very well chiseled. I know they generally do have good chiseled. Of course they do. They're yeah. out there. They're grafting. They're sticking their chin to the wind. I don't know what am I supposed to do. Just offer love, Jen. That's, That's what, what I do. Want. Do you? Yeah, I'm very affectionate. Are you affectionate? Yeah, it only ends up being towards that one person, so it's quite overwhelming. I think. So you like it's a little much. too much for them. Too much. You're love. a little locust limpet, are you? Because remember that you're a hermit crab as well. Yeah, that's why I'm good on your tour. Why is that? Because I'm a hermit crab. You don't need a hermit crab on tour. It's a <laughs> liability. Move, move around. Oh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> move around. <laughs> From Swindon to wherever the hell it is we are next. Basingstoke. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. The anvil. I love the anvil. The week we're back from our holiday. That was pretty big, actually. Yeah, it's got an interesting carpeted design. I like it in the anvil. It's just got a nice pizza express in Basingstoke. Mm, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. We're going to have a good time, man. We're going to have a good time. Come see us on that tour, 33. Uh, also, listen to my book, Revelation, on Audible, if you've not heard it, Nest. Make sure you sign up to my mailing list, watching all my YouTube videos, and follow me on social media. And if you've got uh, Luminary already, go listen to Above the Noise. Do a weekly meditation. You should be meditating every single day, shouldn't you, Jen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you meditate every day? No, it's a, a struggle. Get on with it, I've had my little... Cushion, but hey, it's football. It's nice out to, on a Thursday. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's out now. Brilliant. That's, that's what I was doing over there in that chair. 
Is that what you were doing? Yeah. You're doing well, Jen. You're doing real well. <laughs> Should we listen to John Higgs now? I love this conversation. We talk about the genius of William Blake. We talk about a whole bunch of stuff. You're going to love it. Are you, do you, are you interested in William Blake? No, but I'm interested in reading his books. <laughs> yeah, he's a good writer. You'll enjoy it. He's very, what do I want to say? Sort of eclectic, but sort of like he pulls shit together in an interesting way. Right, let's have a listen to him. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Mate, thank you very much for coming on Under the Skin. I'm really grateful to you. Oh, man, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. Written about William Blake, who I'm sort of fascinated by. William Blake, the poet and artist. And sort of, would you even describe William Blake as a mystic? Yeah, a visionary. Visionary. Why? How come you've written two books about William Blake? Oh, well, you can write a hundred books about William Blake and still never get, you know, close to it. He's such a sort of multifaceted sort of complex rich subject that uh, hundreds and hundreds of books are written about him and they all seem to be describing completely different people they, you know whatever whatever you're looking for in Blake he's going to have written about it you're going to find it there you're going to find your your interests reflected uh, so everybody just gets like their own sort of little slice of him um, and then you know you can read um, there's books like oh I don't know uh, why Mrs Blake cried which looks at the sexual side of Blake or uh, there's that um, Tweedy's book the God of the Left Hemisphere which looks at him from a sort of left brain right brain sort of sort of way or you can there's books that look at him in politically uh, angles or radical angles or artistic angles and it's it's almost like there's just you know it's such a rich complex way there's an infinite number of of perspectives on him and they're all rewarding and they're all you always get something from whichever angle you take. After I started reading yours, I read that, you know, the, so I don't know, seminal initial biography on Blake written by that fella who was a near contemporary whose wife ultimately ended up writing the book. Oh, yeah, Gilchrist, yeah. Gilchrist, yeah, yeah, it, it, exactly. And I suppose one, you know, like given what you said uh, about how perhaps it's true beyond William Blake, but because he is so multivalent, he is a great subject for this kind of analysis. Perhaps in any relationship, you much of it takes place within our own consciousness and there's a kind of a projection of what we want to see and need to see without being reductive in a person rather than any kind of objective reality. So I suppose when someone's like even ex explicitly, as much as such a thing could ever be explicit, dealing with the manifold nature of reality and simultaneously seeing different frequencies frequencies of reality it does become a kind of perfect subject for that yeah definitely and especially because he seemed to be so far ahead of everyone else you know we're a couple of centuries after him now and we still get the sense that we're sort of catching up you know as we as a culture progress and move forward and learn and and, and discover new you know metaphors and new perspectives we're always saying that oh that's really helpful for understanding what blake was talking about you know in, in 1800 or, or whatever he seems to have been um so far ahead of the curve that we're still only sort of creeping up and, and catching up so so it, it, it's a thing that works over time as well as you know uh, uh temporary you know it's there's just he's a rich subject russell is what we're saying i suppose a mystic and someone that's operating in the realm of transcendent the, like the we i suppose assume that what is being transcended is somehow simply the material 
sort of realm as it were because of i suppose how that language is usually applied but true transcendence would acknowledge the scale of human time as well as human size and you know something that is really true is true almost beyond beyond time do you think what do you mean sort of like wave particle type stuff and do you mean like sort of hidden realities and like that kind of thing when you're talking about blake's um like being ahead of his time uh, yes, I guess so. In in terms of things like you know wave particle stuff or a lot of quantum mechanics and stuff, uh, the sort of the models and the metaphors that they came up with in the twentieth century to describe what they were di- discovering really do apply you know beautifully to a lot of uh, what Blake was talking about uh, in his when especially he's talking about eternity, especially when he's talking about contraries being equally true. All the all these sort of strange, bewildering things. That's not to say that Blake understood quantum mechanics or anything like that. It's just that the models we're sort of using now, uh, with our more advanced understanding of how things work, are still proving to be useful when looking at the the mind of this man, you know, over two hundred years ago. And what's um, what I find fascinating about Blake is he's, he's almost impossible to put in a box. None of our standard boxes uh, describe him, describe his philosophy or his, or his worldview or something like that. He would have said, oh, I'm a Christian. But his definition of Christianity would be very different to, to most other people's, especially the notion that, that Jesus was the imagination. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's Taoist ideas in his stuff. There's a lot of, you know, uh, Vedic thought, Indian philosophy. There's you can make a strong argument that he was an atheist. You know, there's all these different ways of trying to frame him. Um, and he's not quite right in any of them. There's a lot of Gnosticism in him. But, you know, his views of the body were different. He doesn't really fit in any of our sort of categories of religions or philosophies or, or worldviews. He seems to be outside them with a more expansive view seeing bits that are useful in all of them and having his own sort of um his own take that we're only now sort of trying to to or, or that we're still trying to understand and we're still learning from and we're still sort of finding uh of of, of great value and, and and sort of you know true it feels very very sort of real and, and sort of true I read this book by the Jungian analyst Edinger. Did you see that? And it's a sort of an analysis of um, um, Blake's engravings from the book of Job. And um, why I loved that book so much, one, it was short and bloody easy to read. But With another, good pictures. Really good, really good quality pictures. But with regard to what you're saying now about him being, um, that he's sort of too plastic for taxonomy, that there's this bit like, you know, obviously, you know, you're dealing, the subject is coming from the Old Testament. Then the actual objects that you're looking at are these engravings. And then the analysis is sort of Jungian, but I suppose consistent through that is this idea of archetype and like sort of, sort of universalism, say, could we call it or perennialism or whatever. In there, there's these bits which I'm, obviously you'll be familiar with, like, of like sort of um, like the the first engraving of um, Job and his family. They're sort of he seems to be suggesting that there's some performative and ersatz aspect to their being. Like they're stood by the tree of life, the instruments are all hung up, the animals are laying down, and by the end, after Job's let's call it a troubling time for Job, <laughs> um, like by the end of it, he's um, 
Yeah, and the animals have stood up and everything. And so, and um, there's this bit that this is Edinger's analysis. I think you know, obviously, isn't Blake's, but um, he says this thing in the panels that are of the Behemoth and of the Leviathan, which were the the panels that messed me up. And I'd like to see the originals of these things, by the way. So I'd love you to tell me where they are and what they are and all of that. And anyway, like Yahweh, who looks like the same as Job says to Job, here is the Leviathan and the behemoth that I have made as I made thee. And like you're sort of confronted with a terrifying aspect. And and, and, and and Blake captures, particularly I found in the behemoth, this idea of dumb carnality, of just the beast, the appetite of wanting, of longing, that is as much part of um, human reality and perhaps absolute reality as any other sort of divine sublime energy. And Absolutely. Yeah, he, t- he totally in- includes everything. Does does Blake, and it's uh, and it's interesting that a lot of Jungian al- anal- analysts uh, are drawn to him because a lot of what he says fits so beautifully with Jung, especially the idea of the shadow or the spectre, as Blake called it. We you know, all had our own spectre, and the idea wasn't that we have to battle and destroy the spectre. We just have to accept it and bring it back in because it knows things that you know we don't. Uh, and you know, this was. This was uh, over a century before Jung and before Freud and before there was this, the, you know, the field of psychology and, and a, a way of studying the inner energies of, of the mind. You know, so much of, of, of Blake's work is about different aspects of the mind and how they clash with the other differing sort, sort, of, sort of parts. And that's the, um, the, the, the energies of those clashes between these sort of competing parts is, is what drives so much of... of uh, uh, of you know of his work and what makes it still relevant and what makes it you know still useful. There's this writer called Emmett Fox who's like I guess uh, what you might call I suppose I think I've heard him called anyway a first century Christian writer. Like I think that means that you're interested in the principles of early Christianity as opposed to what it evolved into. And um, he he goes like that. He said the what is in this bit of analysis around the Sermon on the Mount. He says Christ would have foreseen all of or foreseen like um, psych, the profession of psychoanalysis or the tools and analytics of that ideology. And he's referring to that. And in a sense, I think perhaps this Christian writer is trying to sort of, I suppose, um, revitalize religion as a potential alternative to the burgeoning then burgeoning profession of psychoanalysis but what i suppose i like about that john is the idea that you know however you're approaching it with there is some sort of you know what terence mckenna might call i suppose like that there's an object there is some object some ulterior object that we're sort of reaching for like and you've also like written uh, like about like um robert anton wilson and i feel like you're and and, and like Timothy Leary and you're well into Alan Moore and that and I, 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 I wonder if do you see like like in there's a few bunch of questions here I'm in my stride now John so this is when I just dump a big skip of words at your door uh, oh, yeah, very much something that the KLF would do uh, you've also written about um but like sort of like um like I want to say, like, are you interested in people that seem to be trying to deal with something transcendent and using language other than religious language to describe something that is real in this sort of postmodern time that sort of leads to materialism and nihilism to try and find meaning, to try and find purpose? Is that what interests you in some a figure like Robert Anton Wilson, who I don't know that much about, actually, and some of the other people you've written about? Well, uh, what's been really fascinating for me uh, going into Blake 
is finding all these ideas that I'd previously written about with people like Robin Anton Wilson and, and Timothy Leary, which I, in my head, viewed were very much tied up with the 20th century, you know, psychedelic 60s and things like that. And having um, Blake just basically saying them all out loud so much earlier, the, the notion that... Um, uh, Robert Anton Wilson will, for instance, talk about, uh, you know, how what you believe imprisons you, you know, how convictions create convicts is how he'd put it. Uh, this is this is Blake's mind forging manacles. This is exactly the same thing. This is uh, Timothy Leary uh, came up with the concept of reality tunnels, which I think is just a really, really useful model. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson also popularized it. But the, it's the notion that um, reality, you know, we're not in what we get. What's the best way to put it? You know, uh, in our mind, we construct this model of reality and we confuse that with what's really out there. Uh, and uh, being a model, it's, you know, it's not as accurate. It's smaller. It doesn't quite, it hasn't got a one-to-one -one fit with what's really out there. But because we're living in it, we don't notice. We can't see the, the differences. We just believe this, this, this reality tunnel that we construct ourselves. And it's a big, big, you know, uh, thread in, in the, in, in the philosophy of Timothy Leary. And it's all there in Blake, as a man is, so he sees. It's, it's uh, the notion that the, the, um, the world as we perceive it is in some way a self-portrait, that there's a sort of a moral aspect of perception that we're sort of creating these things, uh, that what the world is, is partly us and sort of partly the world. Uh, Blake would say that... Um, uh, you know, a, 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 a tree that moves some to tears of joy is for others just a green thing that stands in the way. You know, the, 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 the you know, if, if, if you're really sort of, uh, you've had a good day, maybe you've, you've met someone wonderful and things are nice happening. You walk down the street, you know, you'll see, you'll see people smiling. You'll see little kids playing. You'll, you'll, you'll see a funny thing in the shop or something like that. If you've had a, if you're hungover and you're in a bad mood and someone's been cruel to you and you walk down exactly the same street, you know, you'll see the homeless guy, you'll see the, the vandalism, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll see whatever. Um, the, the way, the, essentially the way we perceive the world uh, is something that we actually have a responsibility for and no one else does. It has, it, it, come, it sort of comes down to us. This is an idea that I've explored in Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson and, and so forth like that. But, you know, it's all there in Blake. It's all there. It's, uh, uh, it's just... I don't know. I, I think and it's a useful idea. It's a really useful idea. Do you feel that we live in a time now where agency and the creative spirit and the imagination is being sort of continually diminished and impeded? So our ability to sort of imagine and create new realms is kind of um, dissolving. And like even at the, you know, I I don't want to sound infatuated by my time, although why wouldn't you be and what difference does it make really because that's the only thing we're really going to interface with i suppose um so but like it feels to me like when you're talking about that we live in a model of reality rather than reality itself and like that's been a approach from a kind of you know like a, in lacan the symbolic and the real and the idea that we're sort of housed in language and i like that thing about in robert anton wilson wilson about like get like the word is and the verb to be in all its forms should be uh, annihilated so that and and in um uh, i'm guessing someone you probably know that in um robert mcfarlane he talks about sort of some other language like a, i think it's like a south american language where they you they have more verbs than nouns and like the river rivering and foresting is for 
and 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 that that, that that endows nature with its deserved and necessary vitality and i you see this thing i'm thinking about mate is it seems like some of the people that you're interested in writing about and some of the, the some of your analysis although you're sort of it seems in the work of yours that i'm familiar with you're careful to balance with um science scientifically balance your more mystical and poetic espousals uh, it seems that you're it seems like you're interested in the sublime and the divine and that which is sort of very difficult to kind of hold. Yeah, um, certainly interested in the, in the extent that uh, a lot of our culture just sort of denies it and so ignores it. Um, and so there's this sort of big elephant in the room in, in, in a lot of things. Um, you said a lot of stuff there. I know, but what about you when you just said yeah and then your answer had all that Timothy Leary stuff in it and then it had Robert Anton Wilson in then it had tunnels of reality in it. You know, I know there are great big tracks of information are being exchanged here, but I suppose really the thing that I suppose I'm moving towards by like looking at your work and the kind of subjects that you approach and the way that you approach them, some of which are sort of it, like, and all of them are somewhat, I, I suppose, um, at points been subjects that would have been seen as frivolous and disregarded like cod intellectuals pseudo intellectuals whether that's on the basis of class or some sort of presumed naffness like that the, there might be magic in there there might be alchemy in there and that perhaps part of the dominator culture's tendency to um review these subjects as not worthy of um serious study is precisely because they are accessing something potent and challenging uh yes i i think so i mean i'm um you know i've been writing books for about 10 years and oh. You've read bloody loads of them. You're cranking them out. I thought I wrote a lot of books. <laughs> um, and I, I, I don't really know where I fit in the sort of the sort of publishing world, but I know I'm a little bit uh, out to one side um, uh, in that my books, they sort of come out, they don't sound massive, but they sort of keep selling. Mm. And, and people who read me sort of keep reading me and they sort of, sort of keep going back back to me. And I'm sort of, you know, I don't, I'm not the sort of author who gets invited to, you know, hey, you know, I don't sort of get reviewed in The Guardian or, some, or something like that. Um, so it's all right for me to go into these areas because everyone else is leaving them alone because they, they're, they're scared that they may be, you know, uh, 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 shown up or embarrassed to be, to be associated with these things. It's all this, this lovely, rich, rich um, uh, topics that, I mean, it's crazy to me that no one had written a book about the KLF. For about you know seventeen years, because it was just the most fascinating music story that I'd ever heard of. Will you tell us the story a bit? Because a lot of people, like you know, like me, other than because of stuff popularized by your writing, I just thought, oh, they're that band. They burned a million quid. Tammy Winnett, you know, I mean, I didn't sort of like, but they were doing some out there shit, Bill Drummond and stuff, and like it's like they were. Um, did we tell us about them? Will you? Yeah, well, what I liked about it was what they were, the out there shit that they were doing, as you say, was um, right on the forefront of, you know, British culture. They were at number one. They were on top of the pops. They were being written about in the sun, doing all this sort of wild stuff. And because it was so public, no one could really say, what the, what the hell is this? Because <laughs> everyone was just seemed to accept it at the time. You know, it was... It was uh, 
Uh, just the name, the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. <laughs> these are this isn't this isn't the name of a proper band. You know, words like Justified and Ancients don't fit in pop music. It's just it just it's coming from a completely different place. And with the giant horns and the cloaks and the uh, you know they they would take journalists up to Jura and have burn bit giant wicker men and um, uh, all this stuff that was coming from uh, people like Robert Anton Wilson, who you mentioned earlier. Uh, inspired by uh, a book he co-wrote, The Illuminatus, and they were borrowing, you know, the mythology from from all that, and it's all tied up with Ken Campbell, and just there's there's all this sort of you know fascinating um, alternative ways of viewing uh, uh, what a creative life should be. You know, the thing with Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti is everything they did on paper just looks wrong you know if they if they if if they were being managed by you know the your man behind x factor or pop idol or, or something like that there was nothing there's no single thing that they did that would have got past the committee that got, would have got past a bunch of you know um minders who were judging you know how, how these things will sort of play out uh it was all pure instinct and it was it was about honoring that initial spark of a creative idea before the rational part of your brain sort of kicks in and criticizes it to death. And it's, it's about honoring the, the, the pureness of the idea and seeing it through and, and, and all about the work. Uh, and because they did that, you know, the work they did was just fantastic. You know, a lot of those records they did were so brilliant and really sort of stand, stand up today. Um, and the whole thing about being tied up with, um, yeah, burning the million pounds, you know, where it all had to lead to this really sort of insane, horrendous, nihilistic, you know, terrible, terrible thing. Um, it's a, There's a story there, clearly. There's a, clearly a story. And the fact that no music journalist wrote that book is just so it's like people couldn't see it. It was it was just it was it was there in front of everyone. But because it didn't really uh fit with our how we understand how the world should be we would just slide past it we would just sort of uh look away from it this was blake's problem as well because it went in in his lifetime you know because his um his philosophy at the core is fundamentally different to basically the, the whole of western thought um and hence his peers and his contemporaries were like oh that's nice and and, go, and ignoring it and sort of sort of going going the other way and it all comes down to this this notion that's central in Blake that the immaterial the, you know or the spiritual or whatever you want to call it uh, is internal it's in it's inside us you know that uh, thus men forgot that all deities reside in the human breast the idea that God and heaven and hell and demons and angels and all things these are internal things internal processes internal sort of states um is fundamentally different to everything we're taught. And it all goes all the way back to Plato, who had this separation between the, you know, the world of forms and the, you know, the, 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 the world of matter, uh, that the, the, for, the, for a chair to exist had to be an idea of a chair in some idealized sort of far off sort of realm. Um, and this, this, this realm was, we couldn't reach it. It was away from us. It was, it was, it was, it was far gone. Um, and then the early Christian church sort of picked up on this idea and found it as 
wonderful way to sort of get the universality of Christianity and sort of separate it from the God of, of Israel and become this sort of universal thing. So in all our, our Western you know, monasteries and uh, then the universities that followed, the idea that the, um, the, 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 the spiritual was beyond is embedded so deeply in their foundations that we can't really see it. We can't really see it at all, except for Blake, he, who came along and just thought, well, no, that's bollocks. You know, the, 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 uh, it's, that's, not, that's not how it works at all. And I find a really useful uh, uh, example to sort of explain this is, is the notion of um, hell, the notion of hell. Because uh, most people in the, you know, the fairly secular 21st century do not believe that hell is a physical place that exists somewhere where you could go or you could be sent to or, or something like that. Most people don't believe that. But we've all known someone who at some point has been living in hell. And we all know, I mean, we all feel that to deny the validity uh, of that experience would be wrong. You know, it feels a real sort of thing. And once you accept that all what theology is talking about uh, can be thought of as in, in internal states. Once you accept that people can be living in hell, the idea that they can be living in paradise, as Blake said he was towards the end, end of his life, particularly, suddenly becomes plausible. And the we don't have that in our culture. The idea that you know that the paradise or bliss or, or a heavenly state is something real that can be part of our lives. Um, I've just, I don't know where this question started, but I've, I'm, I've kept going for a long time. <laughs> materialism sort of demands of us, and I sort of mean materialism sort of ideologically rather than, you know, there is stuff, even though there might not be stuff. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> like, um, like it sort of, it, it requires that we seek. I suppose our cultures our social and economic systems could be seen as reflections of aspects of our inner life in that they seem to be instantiations of the survival instinct of the the instinct to procreate or eat food or dominate all things that occur in nature it's i suppose like you know that we were talking about blake's ability to hold contradictions and paradoxes it's just that the way that I suppose there is no walled garden. All things are included. It's only what do you prioritize? And elsewhere in that that engravings book, he sort of in the Edinger's analysis, he says like that in this like through the, as the great engraving represents the potential for you know the the unconscious mind in the leviathan the carnality of the behemoth the divinity of yahweh and the sort of personal small s ego of job it's that and like i liked your point there about saying that christ is the imagination or at least that's something that blake toyed with it like that we create in the analysis says that it's not like there's an external template of ideals to which we aspire this is you know a moral or ethical tablet of aspirations to which we ought work towards but rather if we are not good then god is not good 
if we do not realize goodness, then that's that's the true horror that it's here in the point of intersection of the moment that we must realize this paradise or this hell. And that that's a good degree of agency that even every time I say it, I know I'm dealing with something kind of canny because I think about it all the time. Whenever I say it, I sort of scare myself a bit with that, it it rings a bell in me that is not part of my sort of language mind. God only acts and is in existing beings and men. I think was how Blake put it in a in a in a different thing. Um, God is very much something we create as much as He creates us. There's this this real. Um, uh, it's it's common. It's very very common in Blake. It's you know that Iron Maiden uh, album cover, the number of the beast, where like the uh, the devil is controlling uh, figure Eddie, but also Eddie is controlling the devil oh, on yeah, the puppet yeah. strings. That's really Blakeian. It's 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 a uh, um, he, he manages to get away from um, you know just standard either or thinking or, or dualistic sort of thinking in a way that our language is really trains us not to think that way that's that's where it, what's what feels mystical trying to think in sort of uh blaking ways but the the um yeah uh like asia or the cretian liar paradox you know all men from liars are all people from crete are liars says the person from crete and like the idea in a sense that yeah that we're living in models of reality rather than reality itself can be daunting and terrifying and alienating and it can be behind the impulse of horror when i think of a film like rosemary's baby and the idea that that you cannot know those that you most love and they may even be in league with satan himself is a sort of a terrifying idea but the similarly the idea that we can sort of dream paradise into being it seems to me is a sort of a radical one and like of the some of these figures that you've um you know that you've written about say robert anton wilson like i don't know a great deal about robert anton wilson he said that he's lovely he's, <laughs> I, I heart, heartily recommend him something like cosmic trigger one is is a good place to to start uh or indeed my KLF book though to give that a plug um he um there's a there's a robert anton wilson blog called rawillumination.net which is which is great uh, and they were just there was a post up there where they were trying to say why is he still relevant, and it basically boiled down to he he his argument all seems to condense over the idea that we can be happy and we can find meaning in this world, uh, <sighs> you know. Uh, but he was no he you know he, he embraced doubt, you know he he was nobody's fool he wouldn't sort of. Um, uh, he, he was such a strong agnostic um, that um, he, he always argued that we must not fall for our own BS, our own belief systems. He was mm -hmm. he, he had so many little tricks and methods for sort of um, avoiding those mind forged manacles in, in his writings. But at deep down, he was compassionate and he was funny. This is, the I think, the, the, the key idea, John, is like that what under do you have an optimistic or pessimistic or a hopeful or loving worldview um like I'd, I'd say pragmatic optimistic view which is something i get from robert anton wilson now not blind optimism that's that's of no use at all you know don't go for blind optimism but um a pragmatic optimist will look for solutions to problems when a nihilist will just give up because there's no point so yeah. just yeah. on a sheer 
statistical level, it is a more uh, useful and sensible and wise to be a pragmatic optimist than it is a pessimist or a nihilist. It can be hard, isn't it? Because sometimes the kind of um, uh, the ambrosia or the soma, say, of blind optimism can be appealing, like the kind of deracinated new ageism, the kind of traditionless, sort of somewhat hapless and hopeless sort of idolatry of that. And, and that's what, again, that's what's great about Blake is you just don't get that, even though... He's talking about turning London into Jerusalem, into the, into the golden celestial city by the power of art and by his imagination. Uh, there's never any sense that he's just like this, you know, this, this comfortable sort of well-off person who can sort of hide from the horrors of the world and just convince himself that things are just nice. You don't get that at all. You know, he writes about, you know, uh, child prostitutes. He writes about homelessness. He writes about the child chimney sweeps and the, the injustice and, the, and the, the horrors of London. And he sees it all very, very clearly. But he also understands that he can perceive a sort of more golden uh, sense of the place where he lives at the same time. It's not an either or thing with, with Blake. Hence, you get the, um, the marriage of heaven and hell which is just a theologically like shocking sort of title to, to uh, he, was spoofing, he was spoofing Swedenborg's Heaven and Hell. Um, and he came up with the marriage of heaven and hell. And for him, you need both. You can't, you can't have one without the other. They sort of create themselves. And once you've accepted that, you know, you accept it's never, this isn't the perfect world. It's never going to be a perfect world, but you can find ways of, of, of um, finding meaning and, and also bliss and transcendence in it. You know, that's just a very sort of uh, healthy way forward, I think. How do you map these ideas onto life? Not that that's necessarily what we've I've asked you on the show to do. But like I remember various points in my life when I've been, you know, there's kittens down here. My cat had kittens in this room. There's like eight kittens down there. It's pretty that's a lot of kittens. Oh, bless them. Yeah, oh, nice. God. Look at that. They're so wee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've we've basically he's sleeping over there. We've basically got a panther, okay. which is the opposite of those cute little things. He's like this big, and he's just got the attitude of a panther. He ain't a friend. Uh, mm -hmm. He's just a swine of a cat. Uh, but he's, he he may come and bite me later. Where where do you live, John? Uh, Brighton. Oh dear, down, down oh, on the dear. south coast. Yeah, mm. it's. Uh, mm. it's, uh, it's it's it's. I've just been out for a, before this. I went for a little bit of a walk. Went down the sea. When I'm studying stuff, mate, I, uh, either this is narcissism or it could be pragmatic optimism. I think, how does this, how can I use this? You know, when I'm like looking at sort of like, I was doing this course once on uh, religion and global politics and there was a module sort of on the origins of yoga. And like when you're talking about sort of esoteric, Ayurvedic mysticism, I feel like, and the same with whether, you know, William Blake or the KLF or Robert Anton Wilson. What I'm, I'm always thinking, how do I employ this? How do I employ this as a man that is married, that is a father of children, that is living in the position that I'm living in, that has the sort of the, the passions and fears and doubts and longings that I experience? How am I going to use that now? I suppose that the, the, any artist that reaches and teaches you, I suppose, is they're engaging you there unless it's a sort of a hopeless, senseless, bludgeoning cultural distraction. And none of the figures that you're drawn to could be 
considered in the, in, in, in such pejorative terms. Uh, and like I think, you know, like we've had conversations around Blake, when someone's sort of like seeing angels in trees and recognising divinity, but the complexity of divinity and like saying something like one of your most recent quotes there in our chat, like this basically sounds like atheism, but I can feel within that atheism the sort of the purity of the principle of God. Um, you know, like it's useful. It's useful because like a, a lot of the content that I make and the stuff that interests me is about dealing with that what appears to me to be a time of I would suggest is a kind of how do I say it like a kind of a a time that feels like it's reducing possibility limiting the possibility for magic and creativity the kind of commodification of all things the commercialization of all enterprise be it sort of sport or music or entertainment to a sort of a, a sort of a giddying dizzying peninsula that feels like you know it's going to require something quite radical to change it how do your relationships with your subjects inform that idea that's interesting in um for example in the, the blake book i talk a lot about this swedish mystic emmanuel swedenborg who was a little bit before blake and who had a perfectly sane rational uh, successful life for the first 50 years and then his basically his imagination came for him and it started in dreams and it started uh, overwhelming him and then he was visiting heaven and visiting hell and writing these books about um, it. And people formed a religion after him. They formed a new church and uh, and all these sort of things. And then at the same time, I just read a thing a couple of days ago about teenagers on TikTok uh, and that the practice of what they call sliding. Do you know about this? Reality sliding. Um, it's, it's, it's nuts. Um, they're all teaching each other on TikTok these techniques to enter, as they say, alternative realities. And there's like the Alice in Wonderland technique and uh, the Raven technique and uh, uh, and a lot sort of involved sort of, I don't know, counting down from 100 and getting into a sleeping sort of state, in which case they then feel that their imagination becomes so found and real that they're in other worlds and they script the encounters of where they want to go beforehand. They write these scripts. Um, and they're doing exactly what Sweden, what was happening to Swedenborg for larks as teenagers. But they're using it mainly to sort of go to Hogwarts to get off with Draco Malfoy. And it's like, <laughs> it's like, wait, what's it's I, partly it's that teenage girl thing about, you know, sociopathic public school boys. <laughs> Surely we should be beyond that at this point. Clearly that not. still seems to be sort of, sort of sticking around. Um but yeah, I, I don't, I don't. So you think this is a sort of secular mysticism in a sense like that takes place, you know, evidently in this case within the accepted framework of the imaginative kingdom of J.K. Rowling, because that's as sort of archetypally powerful as anything else out there. And there are a lot of commentators would say, you know, the, the, the mere com commercial success of those books and those films means that there is a, there's undoubtedly a potency in there. For me, like what I think about when you say that is it like, you know, like respiratory techniques and breath work and altered states. Now, like, so I feel like Robert Anton Wilson's into that stuff. And obviously I know that's Tim, Timothy Leary's game and Blake's all about that. And KLF seems like through a kind of a kind of a, like creativity and a sort of a commensurate with punditry of trying to create something jarring about the pop culture while participating in it, like trying to put a charge through it. 
and like see how it responds to that charge. Um, and, 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 and I feel like that the time is ripe for a new approach to the mystery the like given like well, I talked to Adam Curtis a lot who I figure you must be into and like you know Curtis sort of like says individual like people aren't going to be able to roll back individualism now like you know people that's how we define and understand ourselves and our role like this process of personal and sort of oddly cultural individuation is um you know beyond any kind of reversible tipping point and and like but you know, when you say this thing about models of reality, that this sort of applies in um, lots of ways, in like from a semantic perspective, of course, I'm sure from a sensory perspective, uh, but importantly, too, from a kind of a political perspective, that there are models of reality that is acceptable to live within and that there are certain boundaries that we don't breach. And figures like Robert Anton Wilson, it seemed to me that was was interested in what, what what happens when you disrupt and alter, and of course, you know, Leary, blatantly, and like he's he's contemporary Ramdas alongside, he will perhaps always be somewhat placed and in a, I don't know Moses Aaron way. Timothy Leary seemed more kind of dangerous to me, like and sort of doomed somehow, and like whereas sort of Ramdas did go the way of his guru in a sense became. Sort of enlightened and avuncular and gentle, and you sort of followed the Eastern trip, of which there's a sort of uh, an understood way of dealing with that. So he was much easier for the culture to digest, whereas Leary had a much more sort of Western scientific um, uh, take, and he was trying to sort of download all these sort of ex- expanded states of consciousness into into the world of psych- science and psychology and things like that. Really, that. And youth culture, and that was that was what was, was shocking. So he was, you know, he was the most dangerous man in America, according to the Nixon government, and he was jailed and all those 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 strange sagas around him. Yeah, it's it's uh, it wasn't it certainly wasn't accepted. But to, to sort of tie this into what you were saying at the beginning of that question about um, Adam Curtis, um, who who is brilliant, very big fan of Adam Curtis, but he does have a very Lovecraftian worldview, which is the sense that you know the cosmos is you know giant and incomprehensible and possibly malevolent, and you're separate and you're this small and powerless thing at the mercy of, of this this um, incomprehensible other, and it it needs you to see yourself as separate from everything. And it's a very common worldview for those raised in the 20th century, especially those raised by in front of the television, sort of passively in front of the television, the sense that you're separate from everything else. The generation that are coming up now who are raised on their phones, who are raised online on networks and stuff, don't have that. They understand themselves to be valid parts of the whole. And that's a whole other that's a whole other bag of fish, but it it, it means that they have they have responsibilities that older people don't really seem to have. It means there's a lot more anxiety and and it's it's harder and it's more difficult. But it's also true they are valid parts of of, of the whole. So that sort of shift uh, has been going on from that sort of Lovecraftian worldview of people raised by television to the sort of the post individual 
sense of people understanding that, yes, they are individuals, but that individualism also includes the networks that they're part of, the relationships that they have with others. If they want to understand what they're capable of, uh, what they can do, they have to include those connections, those relationships, because the idea of a lone, isolated individual just isn't good enough anymore. It just doesn't explain. It doesn't describe how we are and who we are. So there's that sort of huge shift that's that's sort of going on at the moment. That's an important and interesting point, and I just want to don't want you to go beyond it just yet because I've not actually considered that sort of um, nodal perspective that cause well I, a... I, I could recommend the book. <laughs> i've got a book on all these things go on, what's the book on that one there's a book about the 20th century called stranger than we can imagine oh yeah is that did you get that off mckenna that phrase or no it came from um it's it really comes from um a phrase uh queerer than we can think um but it was being misattributed it's one of those it's one of those phrases that has many fathers basically mm. uh but that's about the 20th century and the rise of individualism and, and the way we stop seeing ourselves in, in a hierarchical way and and, uh, uh, and saw ourselves as individual. And that notion that, you know, uh, we would look at Clint Eastwood as the man with no name and, you know, we go, oh, he's so cool, Clint Eastwood, the man with no name. He's so isolated, he doesn't even need a name. That's cool. At that time in history, we thought, that's so cool. Now, in the 21st century, we just go, that's tragic, man. He was so isolated. He, did, he didn't need a name. There's been a real sort of shift. Curiously, also with actual Clint Eastwood, who has become so isolated that he will talk to a chair, for example. <laughs> <laughs> it, go, it, it's a, it goes nowhere. It's, it's, it, it's such a dead end, really. Pure individualism. But what's growing out of it, and I did a book called The Future Starts Here, which covers... A lot more about that, that change that's sort of that's sort of happening now. You're mentally ill. You keep writing. I bet you're constantly writing books all the time. I am constantly writing books. You need to spend a bit longer on your walk down to the pier. <laughs> but I like writing books all the time. <laughs> <laughs> all the time. Is it got to be all the time, John? Kind of a bit of time where you're looking at your cat or something. Is it always book? You know, you do your work in the day and then you play with the cat in the evening. John, can I offer this up? See that um, nodal reality, which is more participatory and potentially utopian, this sort of interactive TikTokery. My concern would be that the same, ultimately the same sort of interests are at work. Do you think it's possible that, that, that through this technology, inadvertently some Promethean power could have been unleashed back to the population? Or do you think that if beneath it are the same set of economic ideals and the same sort of centralised interest that even though it might have a sort of a individual sort of psychic resonance that's slightly different from the more passive model that preceded it by a decade or two, the result will ultimately end up the same one of disempowerment? Or do you think it could play out differently politically and lead to sort of different types of political expression, collectivism, for example, or re-engagement with mysticism? Yeah, it's possible. It's certainly possible. You get, um, but it's far from definite. It's, you know, those those overriding things may be too strong at the moment. But when you look at people looking into things like basic income and other economic systems and, and uh, donut economics and um, uh, information is being shared uh, away from gatekeepers in a way that it didn't used to be. Uh, and the um, imbalances and injustices um, of the previous system 
um, really becoming hard to ignore. Do you mean around identity politics, say? I wasn't really talking about identity politics, but there's a, the, there is a sense that voices that we didn't hear before are being heard now, uh, which is, I think, a very, very good thing. That is a good thing. If you didn't mean identity politics, what did you mean? Um, uh, what about... What did I say? You said... You said, like... You said, John... Like that now there's sort of diff- like there are different voices being heard, and that because of the advent of this technology, there's I don't know, you know, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it seemed to me like you were saying it's kind of a good thing. But I was starting to think, yeah, but in, in a sense, it feels like noise. It doesn't feel like anything cohesive is coming from it, you know. Um. And like maybe Adam Curtis is, um, and I don't. I'm going to pretend. I've pretended for long enough that I understood what Lovecraftian meant, and I might carry on for another couple of sentences. <laughs> but like, the, like the idea that there is sort of sense, some sort of um, you know, other centralized force in practical terms, this kind of is not maybe not in the most sort of purest, most delightful metaphysical terms, like you know where we, you know, like the possibility for change, very very real one. But there is you know, a centralised control around all of the systems of communication that we're discussing that offer sort of at least the potential for individual expression. But but that there is a great deal of limitation and prohibition and the emergence of the various necessary and welcome voices, you know, of diversity are potentially contributing to a lot of fracture in the sort of what you might call sort of lower income classes that are ultimately beneficial to this sort of centralised power force in that people can't, be collegiate and organised and say, why don't we, you know, create our own sort of communities that are governed according to our own wants, but rather than continually yielding to this sort of ulterior power. Yeah, that's certainly been happening. And um, it's it's also, you know, darker forces are, are, are trying to find ways of hacking what's sort of happening. So to, to, to give an example, the um, I always like Brian Eno's concept of seniors, that uh, in the 20th century, we looked at individual geniuses. We'd look at sort of Bob Dylan or we'd look at John Lennon and go, that's a genius, that's that's important. But Eno was pointing out that what we really need to see is the whole scene around them, the whole sort of Hamburg days and the, the, the rock and roll that made John Lennon. And you can't really... Um, um, Often oh, seniors wow. is is, is where cool. the real magic is. That's the real sort That's of. That's cool. That maybe the kind of emergent iconoclasm is not some is perhaps just a sort of a, an awareness that hang on what we call John Lennon is a sort of a set of ideas and actions. It's an event that led to this moment. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Plus, I've got that app of Enos where like. It, you turn it on and it's playing music all the time and it changes by season and apparently it changes by how much you use it. Yeah, it's called Reflection. It's pretty good. Like, you just put it on. But it's a bit eerie, though, always. Like, no matter what the season, when I'm on my walk, I put on old Brian Eno. It's always a bit... Like, it was foreboding. <laughs> like, that's the thing. It's ambient and sort of delightful. And I sort of, you know, I see a crow take off and I think, wow, man, Eno knows. But then um, I panic a bit. So, yeah, I mean, if you look at physics, for instance, in the, in the 20th century, you know, you get someone like Einstein comes along and almost single-handedly rewrites our understanding of the physical world. And that's Einstein. And that's a genius. And that's brilliant. For now, uh, it takes, you know, thousands of people. Like, for instance, the, the people who built and maintained CERN, 
uh, the Large Hadron Collider. It's all those people to make a similar sort of leap forward in our understanding of physics, this, this move towards uh, away from individuals and solitary sort of geniuses to the, the you know, the wisdoms of the crowd and the, um, the, 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 the shared contributions of groups of people. But it, I am conscious that people are starting to try and hack this. Now, the whole, whole thing with NFTs. Uh, was, that non-fungible? Yeah, non-fungible type in the art world. Was it was a really good idea, a good example of this, because um, essentially people who are basically grifters for cryptocurrencies uh, and trying to make money off cryptocurrencies, and they basically need a certain turnover of use of cryptocurrencies to sort of maintain the sort of the perceived value of these mm. these these digital sort of assets of theirs. Uh, you could see they were really sort of hyping sales of. Um, digital versions of artworks using NFTs and trying to encourage uh, communities of artists to all get on board and all try and sell their NFTs to each other and, and things like that. And you know full well they were doing it to keep the price of their cryptocurrencies sort of up. And it was this real sort of uh, shameless sort of pyramid scheme where uh, people were getting on board and, and putting money in. And, you know, every time you make a little transaction with the cryptocurrency, a little bit of money goes off there and a bit goes off there. And it was just, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was dodgy. It was dodgy what was all happening. Everyone's on a black, like, you know, like, so I just did a, like, um, like a, with a team of people I work with here, a video on Afghanistan and someone just goes, look, you know, this sort of intransigent, pointless, mad war benefited these economic interests over the last 20 years these five weapons companies made this much money oh right yeah it's comparable to your crypto blag there you know that these sort of self-perpetuating systems continue to operate and like what with returning sort of oddly although hopefully meaningfully to the the, the sort of perhaps defining klf moment what what did Bill Drummond and the other geezer, who so I don't know you've already tagged, say that was like what was the, what was it as far as they were concerned? Couldn't really explain it. That was what was fascinating <laughs> about it. Uh, they, they made a whole point of not doing it in an art gallery because if they did it in an art gallery, people would say oh, it was art. They didn't want that. So the whole thing of flying it up to the the Hebrides to the island of Jura and uh, you know, taking it on the just after midnight on the night of the twenty third of August, nineteen ninety four, to this deserted boathouse, uh, and and you know, I think it took a couple of hours to burn uh, a million pounds. And it's one thing to start burning a million pounds, but to finish is 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 quite something. And they couldn't explain why they did it. That's what um, that's what fascinated me about about the story. Many journalists have asked them, but they couldn't really give a, a proper example. So that's why that book, the KLF, takes the uh, approach it does to try and understand what their mind states were in. But the whole money burning thing that's grown out of that is kind of fascinating. There's a, there's a thing called the Church of the Burn and there's burning issue money. Uh, and the, the argument is that, you know, sacrifice has been an integral part of most religions throughout history, but it's always a bit um, cruel. It's like if if you like go, oh, I'll sacrifice a goat, right? It's not, it's not fair on the goat, is it? Burning money was the only ethical way to sort of make a sacrifice because it was, you're the one who gets stung. You're the one who's sort of, sort of hurt by it. Uh, and it's seen as a, um, as an act of forgiveness for which there can be no possibility of any sort of material gain or, or anything like that. It's, it's a total sort of, 
giving, a total act of giving. So there's, there's communities of people who sort of are very much inspired by what Bill and Jimmy did, who are who you know have this this i mean there's a magazine called the burning issue and things like that uh it's it's nuts man you should i think you'd like it yeah it sounds pretty good it sounds kind of religious and i know they're sort of like yeah that sort of subject even though they were as you explain it to me making it clear that it, they didn't want it re- to be regarded as art which i suppose in a sense is secularized you know the day of occasion religion worship whatever yeah it limits it doesn't it, it puts it in a box and then says, and then you can deal with it yeah i find that a lot because we've been talking a lot about these sort of like these systems of contextualization some of which are real and some of which are sort of ethereal and like i'm at the moment for example doing live comedy shows and i'm doing them in a theater and even though sort of increasingly as i've got older and as of the kind of journey i've had with celebrity like i'm trying to deal with something kind of very sacred and true but i recognize that you know on their way the plastic cup of beer is in your hand you're sat in those seats you've walked past a poster of a pantomime you know like you it's difficult to tell people that what i'm trying to engender is a kind of religious shamanic experience um you know like sort of the either it is or it isn't but you know but i am starting to do that that sort of assumes that if you've got your plastic cup of beer and and the pantomime poster it still can't be yeah right we can't find god next to jack and the beanstalk which surely is about aspiring to the giants in the sky and how from that seed you can you can how could god not be by the giant beanstalk poster (laughs) where else would you put god what worldview is that possible how would you extract god from a plastic cup and plant him in a cathedral well for blake it would be the awareness of the the plastic cup it's it's the divine is is um the the sort of the creative active involvement of the imagination with the material world that is that is jesus in blake's terms that is that is the divine that is the thing that stops this being a closed finite physical meaningless purposeless sort of existence of which the only entropy can come you know for for blake the imagination the quantity sort of that active consciousness is is the divine that enters this sort of this fixed finite stock world uh, and keep it keeps it alive and keeps it and keeps it going I get you, mate. So, like, because a lot of these things are like, you know, institutions, systems, traditions, all these things, yes, frozen, certain, full stop. And you're interested in the revivication and that the, if, the, if the divine is anything, it is living, it is alive. And that through our imagination, we are channels and vessels of this. It's, we're not abstract from it. We are it. We are it in action. There's this, um, I heard this thing off of can't remember now but um it was a, maybe it was a physicist and like he was saying that like there's this vedic idea of this net that's cast across all phenomena and phenomena and that at each point where the threads of the net cross there is a jewel and these are these points of attention and something of this image i keep you know when you every to... jewel reflects every other jewel and everything is it's all connected yeah, man. And I keep like these, you know, sort of when you go through these periods of synchronicity and you feel yourself on the edge of madness, that the second language starts to become the primary language, but you've still got to, you know, still got to feed the cat, still got to do the podcast. You know, so I suppose now, Robert Anton Wilson is very good for those periods of synchronicity in your life when you feel it's too much and you're tipping into uh, uh, into madness. That's where you need Robert Anton Wilson. How's he? How, how does he help you navigate that then? Well, he talk, he talks a lot about what he calls chapel perilous, which is the sort of state of mind when 
all your maps have run out and you've got no real way of comprehending what you're experiencing uh, and you're almost lost and it's sort of overwhelming. And um, he says there's two ways uh, of dealing with uh, two ways out of Chapel Perilous. Um, paranoia and agnosticism. And the agnosticism for him uh, involved being humble, being humble and accepting that your take is just is not is that you don't know everything. It's it's like you know there's six or seven billion people on this planet, and you won't find anyone else who agrees with you entirely about everything to the, the finest detail. You know, just by the laws of statistics, you have to accept that your worldview is incomplete or, or a bit skewed or you know it's not to say that all are equal or anything like that but you know you just have to be a little bit sort of humble and accept that you don't have uh the the full picture um that yeah that comes that that comes across a lot in in Robert of course the alternative is paranoia and is a very sort of dark and fundamentalist sort of state where you need other people to agree with you to uh believe what you do and you you try and force them and you try and persuade them and you get angry if, if people don't. For Blake, this was, he called it Eurism entering its dragon form, this fundamentalism, that, that sort of the belief that my worldview is, is, the, is the one true one uh, and everyone else has to agree to make it valid. Um, that's, the, that's, the, that's what you've got to fight against. That, all that, that stuff in Blake about... Um, Knowing the limits of your of, the, of your left hemisphere of your of your reasoning sort of self, that's so important in in Blake, and that's what makes him valuable to me anyway. It was Ian McGilchrist that said that net thing, and it was Ian McGilchrist that also said like how much he loves Blake, and was you know when I chatted to him a couple of weeks ago, and I guess I'm you know been reading your book a, a while, you know. I think I, I heard that, and it was great. And also at the end, he recognized, he recommended, sorry, Tweedy's book, The God of the Left Hemisphere. Um, and I also heartily recommend that book. I think it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's taking McGilchrist's ideas uh, and applying them to Blake um, in a way that you just go, of course, it's so obvious now. That's exactly what he's talking about. It's fantastic. It's really good. Um, do you ever go a bit mentally ill then? I'm fairly stable. <laughs> I'm, you know... I'm at that age where I can be fairly sort of stable. I can, I do, um, like yourself, I do transcendental meditation and that keeps me on a level, you know, mm -hmm. that, that sort of keeps me in a, in, in a good place. And, you know, I've got kids and a awful cat and a wife. Yeah. And if, uh, nearly, well, adults now. Grown oh God, you've got adults. Yeah. Got adults. Technically. Where's Alan Moore in this thing, please? I know he's not living with you with the cat and the kids, but the, like he's sort of got that weird shamanic thing. What about that thing? <laughs> Alan, get out of there. He's, by, um... he's much more into magic. Mm. Um, and, the, and his definition of magic is one that really appeals to me as a useful thing in that him, art and magic are essentially the same thing. It's about, it's about the consciousness altering the consciousness of, of, of other people um, where I don't find ma magic. I mean, I, I, I know a lot of magical people and I, I get on really well with like witches and, and, and magicians and things like that, but I don't, 
don't feel that that sense of casting spells to get stuff is <laughs> is is like is a good thing. It's a bit sort of it's weirdly Thatcherite. It's like demanding that the cosmos gives you something. It's 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 that side of magic I've got no real interest in. But the where the blurring of uh, consciousness and the real world uh, meet and it as a creative act. Um, that is fascinating, and that's that. Alan and his friend, his late friend Steve Moore, uh, were really instrumental in sort of make helping me sort of see that. And uh, and I think that's why Alan is so into Blake, um, because the the notion of the imagination as as the divine force in in the world, he's he's all over that. He loves that. That's that's you know that's what makes Blake so special to him. Although he doesn't have the um, the other more Christian aspects of, of Blake, like sort of the importance of forgiveness. If you read Blake, the, the importance of forgiveness is, uh, is it's almost the, the ultimate um, Christian part of Christianity in that uh, if you've got your grudges against people, if you sort of keep them, if you maintain them, they sort of became your prison. You're sort of trapped in them. You need to sort of free yourself from all that sort of stuff. Alan totally loves the grudges. You know, he's he's there for the he's there for the grudge. The drama of revenge. Yeah, yeah. So yes, that is his side on it, I think. Oh man, I understand a lot more things than I did when we began speaking, and you know, probably understand some other things less. But like, it, like it's this. It's been really good. It's been a really good conversation. I really sort of what I feel like it through your subjects and your approach to your subjects it feels like an a, a, an investigation of the ongoing sort of fluidity and again against stasis although there is i suppose in universalism or even any value system a type of like here is there is some allusion to permanence there is some allusion to Eden or Shangri-La or some sort of, or Jerusalem, you know, but, but, but it's happening now, you know. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, um, each book is me trying to make sense of something that seems sort of relevant. (laughs) Let's put that on the cover. Each book is, is me trying to make. (laughs) I did my best. (laughs) I was trying my hardest. John Higgs. Still confused. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, man. Oh, I've enjoyed it, Russell. It's really nice talking to you. Yeah, and you. Yeah, do you see them kittens? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to read some more of your stuff. I'm going to read some more of your stuff. I, they're all things I want to know more about. Book. Will you? I think that could be a whole rabbit hole for you. Yeah. In in a good way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the, uh, like, I only started, like, obviously I've heard Robert Anton Wilson's name. And I've seen a few things because he's sort of like connected to people that I do know about Watts or McKenna or Leary, you know, but like I've sort of not gotten into it. Like, and sort of now, yeah, that's another thing I'm going to investigate. The KLF is a great start to, to Robert Anton Wilson. Definitely. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you a copy. John, that's a really great conversation. Thanks, man. And good, good luck with the tour and bringing that, um, that sense of the beyond to the plastic cups. If you can't make Jack and the Beanstalk magic, you shouldn't be in fucking showbiz. There's <laughs> the message. Do you know um, there's a book called The Death and Resurrection Show by Rogan Taylor? It's, it explores the um, essentially the shamanic roots of show business and how oh, throughout so time they've been sort of hidden in the press, but they keep sort of coming up. It's a very hard book to get hold of. It sort of came out in the 80s. 
Um, and hence it's going for hundreds of pounds, you know, on eBay and stuff like Why? that. Why? Because it's hard to get hold of. I don't know. Why has that happened? If people want money all the time, they'll do anything to get money. They'll... It's almost like our market capitalist system doesn't work that well sometimes. Wait a minute. Hold on. Let me write that down. The Death and Resurrection Show by Rogan Taylor. You would love that would be a real one for you. It would help you see that um, what you're doing as a stand up is essentially what you should be doing. And is in no way different to, you know, your work sort of, you know, uh, your, your, your religious searching. I did a show last night in West in Western Supermare, and like I could t- I've not done stand up for a while, you know, sort of post lockdown, like and it was very char it was charged like that place is a lot of you know Western Supermare there's a lot of people in recovery down there like there's a lot of treatment centres there's a lot of addiction down there I suppose there is everywhere but like I felt this room was very alive and you know I mean, they're not there for entertainment. They're, like they're not there for that. They're there for something. They're there for something experiential, you know. And I don't want to shortchange people. And I feel like, um, you know, like it get like the more free I am, and the more I sort of express myself, like you know. But the line, the line I'm walking between, whether it's the 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 paranoia and the humility or whatever word you do, the agnosticism, you know, or for me in my sort of sort of recovery lexicon, it would be it's more like a surrender of self centeredness and humility versus egocentrism and you know those two sort of ideas continually fuse and dismantle and i'm continually sort of like that that those gateways sort of open and close continually and i sort of operate in that liminal space but it's very powerful people like at the end are weeping and like you know and and, and like this, this is like coming to i mean it's sort of it's very interesting for me to try and get a handle on how to deal with it and not give it to the part of me that is very greedy for approval. Right. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Are you coming down? South yeah, I am. Do you want to come? You said like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. In the dome. I'll be there. What this yeah, year? I'll sort you out tickets. I'll sort you out tickets. So don't, don't buy nothing. Like, we'll send you some. We'll send you some. Um, I want to go back to what you were saying, sorry, but uh, you just threw me with some act of kindness. <laughs> Is that all it took? One, a couple of comps, and you can't remember my point about shamanism and the westerns and the sacred in Western Supermare. And it's all out, all out mm. the window. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah Let's stay in touch. Jenny will CC me on an email. You'll get my address for them books. I'll send you them tickets. Yeah, that's lovely. Cheers, John. Lots of love to you. Thank you. Good luck to you, man. Thanks. You and all, mate. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that lovely chat with me and John Higgs. I adore him. I'm going to get to know him a little bit better. Now, listen, I want you to sign up to my YouTube videos. I want you to sign up to my mailing list. I want you to come and see me live. Watch out for an announcement about a new live show that I'm going to be doing soon that you're going to love. It's in a field. It's out the back of a van. It's what I've always wanted. It's happening, Jen. The great power has come. What if you get cold? I'll be in a blanket. Oh. Yeah. I'm in a field. I'm in the back of a van. I'm wrapped in a blanket. It's happening, Jen. You knew, Jen. No. Jen, you can't deny destiny. It's like the infinity symbol. But what's going to happen then? Don't know. Hands (laughs) of God. Hands of God. It'll just be a load of people then, and you might want to leave, but you're not allowed because that's where you live. Hands of God. (laughs) (laughs) What's Chris Rock in West? Why would people keep ringing us saying Chris Rock was there? I know. I was waiting outside for him. You actually went outside for Chris Rock. It was that close to Chris Rock. Apparently. I was like, I'm outside, and they're like, oh, he's a bit far away now. I'm like, oh, weird. What do you mean? Has he got further away? Yeah, strange. Chris Maybe because Nick Cage is nearby, right? Nick Cage? 
I don't know. Why would Nick Cage and Chris Rock, you think they have to be together because their names are sort of similar? <laughs> are they? Like, well, they're like children's book people. Nicholas Cage. Nick Cage so are you and the Chris only Rock. Who calls him Nick Cage? Who else do they call him? Nicholas Cage. No, Nick it's, Cage. Chris Nick, Rock. It's like when you call Steven Tyler Steve Tyler. You don't call him that? No. It's like if you were Russ Brand to everyone. Don't call me that. <laughs> That's what it's like. That's a Fendi for me. Yeah. That's a Fendi for me. It's Nick Cage and Steve Tyler. I just was trying to save a bit of time. <laughs> you don't say Christopher Rock. No, but he's Chris Rock. Right. Yeah. But not Steve Tyler. No. The, the, the syllables are like iconic. Nicholas Cage. <laughs> Why was that so difficult? It didn't sound right. Nick Cage. No? You've upset Annabelle. She's all right. She bounced back, Annabelle. She's tough as old boots. <laughs> old Lincoln Annabelle, I call her. <laughs> From Reading. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, let's go now. We're all tired. We're all having mental breakdowns at different speeds. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to Under Skin, only from Lumineria. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin Goodbye.